All right, we ready to do this? Good morning. Um, man, I'm kind of sleepy this morning. You guys kind of sleepy? Is it just the first service? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's all right. I need just coffee drenched on me. Um, maybe between the services, yeah. Um, hey, if I haven't got the chance to meet you yet, my name is Jay, and I'm on staff here at the church, Jay Frymeyer. If you're a guest with us this morning, like Jeremy said, uh, I'd love to meet you between services. I'd love for you to come say hi after. So if you feel so inclined, maybe you are extroverted and you just want to come say hi to someone, I'd love to meet you. That'd be great. And so please do that between services. Um, this morning, we will be in 1 Corinthians 5, and we are going to continue on in our service, uh, in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. While you guys are turning there, um, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we will dive in. Father, we thank you for giving us this, this place and the space to, to come together and worship you this morning. It's good that we would, we would do that. We'd come together and sing songs of praise to you. We'd study your word. And as we dive into 1 Corinthians 5, I ask that you would, you would correct, that you would convict us, that you would make us more into the image of Jesus as a result of our time together this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hey, so I think if we were all completely honest with ourselves... The first thought that comes to our mind when we hear the word discipline is not a positive one, right? It's probably a negative one. Merriam-Webster, Webster, uh, the, the king of definitions, defines discipline as to punish or penalize for the sake of enforcing obedience and perfecting moral character, or to train or develop by instruction and exercise, especially in self-control. Those descriptive words we use for discipline, they sound pretty terrible, right? Punish, penalize, enforce, perfecting character. For some of us, even that word exercise probably makes us tremble a little bit. See, discipline can be hard for us to fully submit ourselves to. Correction, even though it's for our good, can be messy, it can be hard, it can be painful, it can bring about feelings of guilt and shame. And rather than submitting ourselves to temporary pain or discomfort, we oftentimes want to kick the can down the road and say, hey, this is something I'll address at some other time. And it's especially painful if someone else has to do the correcting for us, right? Like it's one thing for me to notice uh, an area of weakness in my life or an area of sin or maybe like I'm, I'm eating poorly for a season. It's one thing for me to notice that. But if it gets to the point where you notice that and have to say something to me, now it gets really, really uncomfortable. But... Discipline and correction is for our good. So here in 1 Corinthians 5, we find that correction is needed, and it gets awkward, guys. Um, There's a specific sin that has surfaced, and it's a symptom of a much greater problem. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to address that sin initially, and he's going to get to the root of the issue. So what is that problem? Here we go. For kids in the room, you may need earmuffs, okay? Verse 1. It's in the Bible. I'm just reading the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 5.1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So it's widely understood that this is not the man's mom, but it is his stepmom. And there's a decent chance that this woman would have been closer to him in age than his father. It was common in this day for men to marry women 10 to 15 years younger than themselves, Um, but we can't know that. And we don't know if the father's in the picture. We don't know if he's passed away, if he's around, where he is. But again, this is just an uncomfortable situation for us right here. Um, One one thing we can know is this. 
that God has clearly stated in his word that this type of a relationship is forbidden. Four times in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, he says something to the effect of, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. So Paul doesn't spend much time here addressing the man and his stepmom. He does say, hey, this is wrong and this should not be happening. But he uses this situation to address the church as a whole. He sees this as a symptom to something much greater. In the same way that you and I might see a recurring bloody nose or recurring migraine headaches. In the moment, we just want that thing to stop, right? Like if you've got a bloody nose, you just want it to stop. And you're going to do home remedies. You're going to do whatever it takes to make it stop. If you have headaches, you just want to make it stop. But if those things keep happening, our bodies are telling us, hey, something bigger might be going on here. You need to go to a doctor. You need to get this checked out. For Paul, it was a symptom of something greater. He addresses the initial issue. He says, hey, this is wrong. This should not be happening. But for him, the bigger issue was this. How in the world could this church allow this man to remain in their midst in good standing and say nothing about it? How could they let this happen? Multiple commentators suggest that the man in question had a great deal of wealth, okay? And so what tends to happen when someone Uh, with someone who's known for being wealthy or known for having a great deal of wealth, oftentimes they get a pass. Not all the time, but oftentimes they can get a pass. And so unfortunately, the church in Corinth had let this man, because of his influence, his status, and his wealth, live by a different set of standards than that which God has laid out for them. Additionally, the church in Corinth has gotten to a place where they consider themselves even above God's standards. They've become arrogant and are boasting in the idea that they are so free in Christ that they do not need to pursue holiness. So how does Paul address this? Verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So let's talk about baking for a second. I love baking. I love good food. I love, that's, that's why I love good food. So that's why I love baking. So in this day, I mean, as you read the scriptures, you're going to hear a lot about leavened bread and unleavened bread. And so in this day, if, let's just say the week prior, they made a batch of dough, okay? And uh, they had worked on this, and so this had become leavened. And so later on, let's say this week or next week, they want to make a new batch of dough, but initially it's unleavened. If they take just a small piece of this leavened dough and mix it together with the unleavened dough, over time, the, the leavened dough is going to permeate all of the unleavened dough, No piece of the unleavened dough will not be affected by the leavened dough. So in the same way, Paul knows that the church allowing this man to remain in good standing in their church and refusing to confront him in his sin, it's affected every area of their church. Every person in the church is getting a front row seat to see that holiness, the pursuit of holiness is optional. Unrepentant and egregious sin is allowable here, because we are so free in Christ that we are not held by any particular set of standards. Well, Paul doesn't like that, okay? So he addresses it. So what does he say? He says, get rid of the old leaven. Separate this out. Get rid of the old leaven. Verse two, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse five, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Verse seven, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Verse 13, purge the evil person among you, from among you. Now consider how shocking this might be for this church who doesn't want to do anything about this. He repeats himself over and over, and he uses strong language to communicate this is an important issue, and you need to address this. Sever all ties with him. Deliver him to Satan, he says. 
Purge the evil person from your midst. Don't even eat with him, he says in verse 11. Do not associate with this man. Now, that feels a little harsh, doesn't it? Does that come across initially a little harsh? But what is Paul's end goal? For the man, it's that this would ultimately lead to restoration and repentance. Let's read in verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Why? For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So he tells them to come together as a body, and not just the elders of the church or the leadership in the church is supposed to address this. Everyone in the body is to come together. They're to deliver him to Satan so that he'd be saved. Paul's hope is that the severed relationships with this man would make him turn back to the Lord, that he would wake up and realize that what he's doing is wrong, and it's not just affecting him, it's affecting everyone around him. Now, it was much different back in Corinth in this day than it is now. Homeboy didn't have, like, Corinth Community Fellowship to go to. He didn't have, like, Corinth.Church to go visit the next week. This church was it. So if they severed relationships with him— He had no other believers to engage. He had no other followers of Jesus to fellowship with. Today, too many people are allowed off the hook, right? How many evangelical churches do we have within like a 10 to 15 mile radius of us? Like dozens, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that they're all good and healthy churches, but there are options. So if if you're going to confront me in an addiction on pornography or alcohol or social media or an addiction to politics or uh, acquiring absurd amounts of consumer debt... I can just leave. If I want to stay in my sin, I can just leave. That, that wasn't the case for this man. He had nowhere else to go. Paul knew that severing ties with this man would cause pain, but not just for the fun of it. Paul wanted to cause this man pain so that he would be turning from his sin, he would repent and be restored back into the church. The primary goal for any church discipline is always restoration. Okay, so that was Paul's hope for this man. Paul also had a hope uh, for those within the church, and it's this, that they would be what they are. Now, let me explain that. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So I just love what Paul does here. He uses the illustration of the leaven to show them what keeping this man in their midst will do and it has done to everyone in their church. But at the same time, he reminds them that they are the unleavened dough. Why? Because Christ, their Passover lamb, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Guys, get this. It doesn't get better than this. What is their motivation? What is to be their primary motivation to remove evil from their midst? It's not to try harder. It's not to do better. It's not, hey, everyone in Corinth is looking at you guys. You need to fix this. It's not, hey, even the pagans in Corinth think this is wrong, so get this guy out. It's not even like, hey, you've been uh, Christians for a while, so you need to have this figured out by now. What is it? Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Purge the evil from your midst because you have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. You're a new people, a new person. You have a new identity. You are the unleavened dough because you've been purchased by Jesus. Now look like him. Now Paul's reference to the Passover lamb ought to have taken them right back to to Exodus, the book of Exodus, right? The people in Egypt who were enslaved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They wanted out. They were being oppressed and they couldn't get out. 
And so God came to their rescue, and he sent plague after plague after plague. And it was finally that last plague that did them in and set them free. In Exodus 11 and 12, God tells Moses and the people of Israel that every firstborn throughout the whole land of Egypt is going to die. And the only way for their children to be spared was for them to take a male lamb, a one-year-old male lamb, one without blemish, and they were to take the blood of this lamb and sprinkle it on their doorposts. This is Exodus 12, 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So because the lamb had been slain on their behalf, Exodus 12, 24, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. So they're to keep doing it year after year after year. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Why do you keep doing this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of uh, the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. For Paul, this was the one underlying motivation for living a life of holiness, for purging evil from their midst and checking the unchecked sin within them. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is it, guys. We are the people of Israel enslaved by something that we cannot come out from oppression on our own. Because of our sin, we have broken relationship with God, and the only way for us to be spared is to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed that we might not die, but have everlasting life. And because this is true, let's keep reading, verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is telling this church, be what you are. Christ has redeemed you, now live accordingly. Now we're going to finish out the chapter here. Paul thought it was necessary to correct one other error that had developed in this church. Let's read in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. You purge the evil person from among you. So we learn here that Paul had previously written them another letter prior to 1 Corinthians, and in that he said, hey, don't associate with sexually immoral people. But he didn't mean any sexually immoral person. He only met those within the church. Here's his distinction. It's those within the church, those who were previously a brother or a sister, who fall into these things, and he gives a list, right? Sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, those who are abusive, and on and on. Why? Because it's those inside the church who we are to judge, not those outside of the church. God will handle everyone outside of the church, but we are to have a form of correction and discipline for those inside of the church. Okay, so we kind of flew through chapter five here, and we kind of studied this briefly. What are some takeaways for us? And I've got four takeaways for us this morning. Number one, give yourself fully to a local church. Give yourself 
fully to a local church. Now, I'm careful there in using that definitive article, a local church, because we would love it if you gave yourself fully to Providence Road, but you don't have to. But it is necessary that you give yourself fully to a local church. Membership here means having a greater responsibility and accountability with and to other brothers and sisters in our body. And maybe that's the reason, like, you don't want to join a church. Maybe you don't want accountability. Maybe you don't want responsibility. But I'm hoping that after today you see that ultimately those things are for your good. Discipline and correction and accountability and responsibility, these things are for our good. Now, if you're just attending here and you've been doing so for a season or you're just watching online, hey, that's okay for a season. But if you've been hanging around for a while and you, like, you know what we believe and you know where we're at, like, what keeps you from moving forward and, and covenanting in membership with us? If you aren't experiencing the richness and depth of community with other believers, you're missing some of the most critical components of the Christian faith. Vulnerability does cost us something, but stewarded well, it can bring about innumerable blessings. So Stephen um, says this about the ideal picture within the church of ongoing discipline that's going to happen. And I believe we have the quote for you. There, yeah, there it is. If discipline is functioning properly within the church, there will be a self-corrective ecosystem. And the glaring examples of hypocrisy, basically anything you see on the news of some famous like pastor or uh, Christian influencer falling from grace, those things should be rare, he says. They would be greatly reduced, if not eliminated, rather than experiencing formal corrective discipline. In community, we willingly submit to one another and receive informal, formative discipline. In a healthy community, you will rarely see formal discipline because of the regular, gracious, informal discipline happening all the time. Now, let me build this out for us. I love my yard, okay? Confession time. And I don't mean like the size of my yard. I don't mean like the toys that we have for our kids in the yard. I love my grass, okay? Let's get specific here. I love my yard, okay? And I've recently actually started to think like, hey, is this a problem? Because some of you in the church have like started coming to me and saying, hey, when should I spray? And like, what, what kind of weed is this? And like, how often should I water? And I'm like, I wonder, like you're treating me like a Lowe's garden associate. So I'm like, what, is there something, go-? but I'll, for another day, right? So uh, anyways, this past week I was sitting in my front yard, sitting on my porch. And I was just staring out at my yard, not like to just to look at the grass, but like I was thinking. Whatever. I'll just, okay, I'll just. I'm just going to leave that there. Anyways, I was sitting on my front porch, and I was thinking, I was thinking about 1 Corinthians 5. And this thought came to my mind as a, uh, a yard expert, I guess, that there are really just two things that you need to maintain a good yard. Okay? It's very simple. Two things. You want to kill what's bad, and you want to promote good growth. Okay? That's it. It's, it's that simple. You kill what's bad, and you promote good growth. So if you want a healthy yard, you are simultaneously killing all the weeds, and the bad stuff that's happening, and at the same time, you're fertilizing when you need to, and you're watering. That's it. That's all you have to do to maintain a good yard. Your life and our local church are no different, okay? Let's not overcomplicate this. If you are walking in consistent, regular fellowship with other believers, and here at Prov Road, we would say that's in a missional community and in a fight club, both confessing sin regularly, killing the bad, and growing in love for Jesus and studying his word, you are going to thrive. It's that simple. It doesn't matter what circumstances come your way. It doesn't matter how hard life gets. As a follower of Jesus, you are going to thrive if you do those two things. Now, conversely, if you're isolating yourself, if you're hiding in sin, 
if for significant periods of time you remove yourself from fellowship, from the body, you're going to starve your soul and will eventually be overtaken by the weeds of sin and death. And just like your yard, the longer you go without taking care of these things, the more difficult and arduous it's going to be to recover what's happened. If you're confessing sin regularly and you're allowing others to speak into your life, like you're just picking a few weeds here and there, right? Like your grass looks good, you see one sprout up, you just pick it. If that's your regular mode of operation. But if you go months or years in isolation, severed from community and not confessing sin, your life will be overrun by weeds and you won't even know where to start. Again, in a healthy community, you will rarely see formal discipline because of the regular, gracious, informal discipline happening all the time. Give yourself fully to the local church. Number two, listen to the Holy Spirit. In chapter three, we read that uh, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within all of those who follow Jesus. Now, if you are aware of sin in your life right now, flee. Right now, flee. What makes you think that later you will have a chance to turn from that sin? The book of Hebrews gives us a sober reminder from the life of Esau that this may not be the case. This is Hebrews 12, starting in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And here it is. For you know that afterward, when he, decided to, he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. If you hear the Spirit of God this morning whispering to you, or maybe shouting to you, that there is sin in your life, why would you wait? Why would you not turn from that sin right now? I once had a, a, a dear friend in ministry who uh, we served together for years. He was a close brother. Um, I knew him to um, be a, a fervent student of the biblical languages. He was passionate about preaching the gospel any chance he got. And uh, a few years ago, he and his family pursued a church planning residency out of state, so they moved and relocated. And uh, he had a few responsibilities at the church he was at. One was just to be formed into a church planner and develop him. And the other was to lead their youth ministry at the time. And uh, over time, he developed a relationship with a minor, a young girl, in their uh, ministry. And uh, I, I don't know exactly all that happened. He won't respond to my calls or my texts. And um, yeah, I'm just kind of devastated for what's gone on. But here's what I know, that it was egregious enough that the state that he lives in thought that he ought to be criminally prosecuted. And he was. Oh, and man, I don't even know what to do with that on some level. And I'm glad to not know the details that took place. But here's what I know about my friend. Like, at one point in his life, he was so passionate about the gospel of Jesus. He was so faithful to proclaim the good news. He wanted to talk about the gospel. He, he especially loved the book of 1 John. Like I, I, when I think of the, first, the book of 1 John, I think of him because he loved it so much. And you know what? Never point, at no point would he have ever said, like, hey, I can't wait to get into ministry so I can develop a relationship with a young girl and, and be a predator to her. Like he, he had never, never at one point said, hey, I can't wait to, to wreck my family in my ministry. So what happened? Over time, accountability disappeared. Someone should have stepped in, right? Someone should have said, hey, hey, the way you're talking to her looks a little weird. What's going on there? Or like, 
I'm seeing a lot of text messages from this girl. What, what, what is that? I, I am certain, I am certain that the Holy Spirit checked him over and over and over and said, hey, don't do this. Don't, don't send that text. Don't you meet her. Like you need, to, you need to shine light on this. You need to tell someone. You need to tell your wife. You need to tell a friend. And what did he do? He, he ignored it all. He ignored it all. Here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want us to like read this story in 1 Corinthians and say, man, what a pervert, right? Like this guy having a relationship with his stepmom. Like I would never do that, like with a stepmom or stepdad. Or hear this story about my friend and say, I would never develop a relationship with a minor. That's so inappropriate. Like that is so beyond me. You know, here's the deal. You and I are one seared conscience away from wrecking our life, okay? That may sound so terrible and like, whoa, like how can you say that right now? We need to hear that. We need to hear that. We are one seared conscience away from wrecking our lives. If the Spirit is speaking to you this morning, you respond. You respond, whether it's you needing to turn from sin or you see it in a brother or sister that they need to turn from sin. Do something today. Find someone to talk with and pray with. Call your friend and set up a meeting. Do something today. If the Spirit is speaking to you today, you respond. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Number three, be who you are, and this is from verse seven. So in perhaps the greatest film of all time, The Lion King, it's the greatest because I said it's the greatest, there's this scene with, where Simba is wrestling with his identity, right? And so early in the movie, he, he's been chased off out of the pride because his, his father's trampled by wildebeests, and he leaves in guilt and shame, thinking that he's responsible. And so he's an orphan. He gets taken in by this warthog and a whatever that thing is, like a meerkat. Is it a meerkat? Yeah, I'm getting a nod. It's a meerkat. So he's eating slugs and insects with Timon and Pumbaa, right? And then Nala comes in, and he starts wrestling with, like, who am I? Like, what have I become? He's this massive lion, and he's eating slugs and bugs with Timon and Pumbaa, okay? So he, he goes off to the middle of nowhere, and he's crying out to his father who's passed away, right? And he has this vision of his dad in the sky. And it's awesome because it's James Earl Jones, right? He's, he's Mufasa. So he's crying out to his dad. He's like, Dad, you know, what do I do? Who, what, 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 what am I supposed to do with my life? And what does Mufasa tell him? James Earl Jones, in the best voice possible. Remember who you are. That's it. Remember who you are. Simba was the rightful king of the pride, and he couldn't return because of the guilt and shame that had overtaken him. And his dad says, remember who you are. This is what Paul is telling the church in Corinth and what we need to hear today. Remember who you are. Cleanse out the evil from among you, the old leaven, as you really are unleavened. You really are untainted. You really are pure in Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You really are this because he is your Passover lamb. He's already been sacrificed on your behalf and the doorposts of your heart have been sprinkled by the blood of the lamb. Because of this, he's passed over you. You will not be destroyed because of the blood of Jesus. Be who you are. Number four, cultivate within yourself the missional heart of God. Cultivate within yourself the missional heart of God. Many Christians today, we just have this backwards. Christians and churches, we just have this backwards to where we're lazy and apathetic to the sin in our midst, and we're so good at judging everyone else, okay? 
It's so bad. It's so bad. And I'm not saying necessarily those of us. I just think culturally, as, as a church, that is how we're seen. We're lazy toward our own sin, and we judge everyone else. But we have it backwards, right? What is Paul saying to us this morning? As followers of Jesus, we're hard on ourselves. Like we, we hold ourselves to a higher standard because of what Jesus has done for us. And we're gracious and merciful to those outside of our midst. We're kind to them. We're loving to them. We give them grace because of what Jesus has done. So maybe we ought to be asking ourselves, am I willing to go where they are in order that some might know the love of God? Am I, be willing, am I willing to be um, abused or mistreated in order that I can develop relationship with someone and share the gospel with them? Do I heap guilt and shame on those outside of our midst because, let's be honest, they just sin differently than us? Do I heap guilt and shame upon them? Paul says if you disassociated with everyone like that, you would have to leave this world. Now, I feel the struggle of this church. I think it's easy for us to look down on others and become self-righteous because I just don't sin in the same way that they do. But what would it look like if we imitated Jesus in the way that he engaged the poor, the marginalized, the drunkards, the woman at the well? What if we treated others outside of our church in this way, the tax collectors and thieves, Zacchaeus? He went to his home and fellowshiped with him and changed his life forever. Does your compassion and your empathy towards outsiders or those who sin differently than you overflow from a heart and life that's been changed by Jesus. So give yourself fully to a local church, listen to the Holy Spirit, be who you are, and cultivate within yourself the missional heart of God. As the people of God, we cannot tolerate evil and sin in our midst, and it begins with us. So are you tolerating evil and sin within you this morning? Are you lazy and tolerating sin and evil within your families, within your missional communities, within your fight clubs, within your friend circles? Does the holiness of God matter to you? Do you live as though Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for you? This idea of discipline, like giving and receiving discipline, like it's not, it's not something we dream about, right? Like it's not something we fantasize about, like, hey, I can't wait to get corrected today by so-and-so want to get rebuked for this sin in my life. But if we commit to both give and receive discipline in the way that God has intended for us, for us, it's for our good and for his glory. May we be a people who embrace this type of discipline that God has intended for us, one that leads to a life of flourishing and honors Jesus among us. Let's pray. Father, I thank, you for, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for even difficult texts that we don't always want to deal with. We want to skip over, and we want to, we want to pass up. I'm thankful for your spirit that doesn't leave us as we are. And so I want to pray for anyone in this room or, or watching online that might be enslaved by a sin or multiple sins right now that they're followers of you, but, but they've been overtaken by sin. Would you release them from that? Would you give them the strength to have a conversation with someone about that? Would you help them to shed light on that in their life? Help them to turn from that. Help us to be the type of church that engages in this regular, informal discipline so that we don't have to 
have these big events where we have to kick people out of the church because they're unrepentant. Help us to be the type of church that regularly calls out these things in a loving way, in a gentle way that shows that, hey, we're a family and we're in this together. But for us to do this, we need your help. This is hard, it's messy, but it's for our good. So would you help us? God, we love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.